Very good to be with you. I began uh, last week my sermon uh, saying how I had been contemplating death quite a lot recently, uh, and I went on to talk about life and how we can only enter fully into life when we are willing to die to ourselves and to trust in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus. This week, I want to begin with a slightly different question about your life. I hope it's not quite uh, too as gloomy or too gloomy, but I want to ask you, what are you for? Why do you exist? What is the purpose of your life? What are you for? Why do you exist? What is the purpose of your life? These are big questions that we don't often consider in daily life, and yet answers are presented to us by society around us that can be persuasive and seductive, but contrary to God's truth. Let me give you an example. Um, One possible answer to the question of why you exist might be, you're an accident. You exist because of nature, a product of the sexual union of your parents. Such a response might suppose that you're an accident. Maybe your parents were intending to seek children by their congress, but maybe it was failed birth control, maybe an unplanned pregnancy, for some even the product of an abusive or dysfunctional relationship. Another response to the question, what are you for, might be, you are to play your part as a producer and a consumer in an economically conceived society. In other words, the purpose of a child is to grow into adult participation in wider society, expressed through the useful production and consumption of goods. I shop, therefore I am. And in this view, education is required for employment, and employment required so that you have money to both produce and consume. The measure of your value in this worldview is GDP, monetary wealth, your capacity to participate in this economic vision of the world. And if you fail at any stage of your education, or you cannot secure employment, then you're sort of a failure in this view of the world, because you're not playing a full part in the economic human project. So you'd best at least have children, so there's a chance that they might do better than you. Finally, another response to the question around your individual purpose might say, your purpose in life is to express yourself, the authentic inner you. Do not let anyone hinder or constrain you in pursuing this goal. And in this view, liberty and freedom of self-expression are ultimate goods. And anything that limits your self-expression or your self-actualization is an enemy, an oppressor. If the pursuit of your desires is challenged or limited, then you're a victim of injustice and you're engaged in a power struggle to fulfill your purpose. Now, these are three crude sketches of three basic conceptions of the purpose of human existence. One, that you're an accident of nature. Two, that you are participants in an economic vision of the world. Or three, that there's an authentic romantic view of self that requires uh, and deserves unhindered expression. Now, naturally, there is some good and some truth in each of these, but they don't get to the heart of understanding the purpose of humanity in the Christian view of the world. These three conceptions of human purpose are worldly conceptions of human purpose. They're not the Christian view 
of human purpose. And to gain an insight into what God says our purpose is, we have to turn to the pages of the Bible and we have to listen to the story that Scripture tells of God and humanity. And in the Bible passage that Violetta read for us a moment ago, we discover God's view of our purpose. The passage concludes, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to explore with us today two aspects of our purpose in God's plans, our individual purpose and our collective purpose. Created in Christ Jesus. The author Rick Warren says, there may be accidental parents, but there are no accidental children. Colossians 1 says that God is the firstborn over all creation and that all things hold together in Christ. You exist because God created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We read those verses in Psalm 139 earlier on as we worshipped. God knit you together in your mother's womb. You are a child of God. You bear his likeness. You carry God's genetic code. Sure, there are a few genetic disorders in there, marred and mangled by sin, but basically, you are created to represent Christ in the world or to re-present Christ by your humanity. The posh theological phrase that theologians use for this is the imago dei, the image of God. And that's the first Christian claim about our purpose, that we are made to bear the image of God in our lives. How is the world supposed to know <coughs> what God is like? They're supposed to look at us, to look at you, look at me. A child drew a picture. Her mother asked what the picture was of, and the child replied, it's a picture of God. And the mother said, don't be silly, no one knows what God looks like. The child replied, when I finish my picture, they will. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God made visible and that we are created in his image. Now that doesn't mean that we all look physically like Jesus. We don't all look like a Middle Eastern Jewish man from around 2,000 years ago. Five foot eight, olive skin, dark hair and beard. We're made, the Bible says, in the image of God. Male and female, he created us. That's what Genesis one says, male and female, he created us. Bridging divides by coming together as man and woman in covenant love and faithfulness that transcends our sexual differentiation is part of how we reflect the fullness of God in the world. But that's another sermon. In fact, the glorious variety and diversity of human creation, uh, finding ways to love, accept, and cherish one another is part of the great work of human reconciliation that contributes to the divine work of reconciling all things to God. In other words, learning to be gracious to one another, learning to love, learning to forgive, learning to accept one another, is part of our fundamental human purpose. And with that grace, that love, that forgiveness, and that acceptance, also to allow the Spirit's work of transformation to occur in our lives, so that we might become more like Christ. 
back to the beginning of Ephesians 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. St. Paul has this conception of a heavenly and an earthly realm, and that there is uh, freedom and, with that freedom, rebellion in the earthly sphere, that principalities and powers, as he describes them later on in the letter, are at work. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, meaning this realm around us, the spirit who is now at work, not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of the age, not the Heiliger Geist, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, but the Zeitgeist, the spirit of our times, the spirit of our age. And he says that will uh, suck you into transgression and sin. You will be dead in transgression and sin if you follow the ways of this world. He says that we also all lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's verse three. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The consequence of living our lives in rebellion to God is decay and death. Ultimately, our estrangement from God will lead us away from life and into death. That's what the Bible says. But says, good news, verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So there has been a change. Becoming like Christ, being made alive in Christ has involved a change. If Christ accepts you just as you are and he demands no change, no transformation, then it's probably not Christ who has accepted you, but a savior of your own making and made in your image. Paul writes to the Romans, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you agree too wholeheartedly with any ideology, political party, or movement that this world has to offer, you might, in fact, be more conformed to the world than to Christ. Think about it. The Bible says we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Becoming like Christ will mean doing what Jesus does. Jesus says in John 14, I only do what I see the Father doing. And when we do what Jesus does, we become co-curators of creation. God's original purpose for us in creation was that we might be stewards of his creation, managers, caring for the world, tending to its needs, making it fruitful. That's what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. But instead, we've exploited the world for our own gain. And at no stage in human history have we done this more shamefully than the past 200 years. I'm so glad that Tash mentioned the uh, Fair Energy Campaign, because environmental disaster now looms. Our vision is clouded by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic crisis, but beyond, there's a bigger wave yet to break. Environmental disaster, biodiversity failing. We cannot cry out to God for help if we're not willing to take responsibility, change our ways, and work with him for the renewal of all things. Next week, we'll be marking harvest together in some way or another yet to be decided and planned. But one thing is clear. Uh, this season of the year, when we think about harvest, we think about agriculture, we are considering and reflecting the world uh, that God has made uh, and upon which we are called to live uh, and, to, and to steward and care for it wisely. 
And harvest is a time where we can hit reset and start thinking about our consumption, the food we eat, the energy we use, the, the things that we buy. How are we complicit in the destruction of God's glorious creation? That's an aside again. Back to my main point. We have a purpose in God's plans. And it's not about you. It's about cooperating with God in the glorious work of the renewal of all things. Do you know that feeling when you see something beautifully made? When you see justice done? When you see a broken relationship restored? Or the feeling when you see communities transformed and renewed so that outsiders and outcasts are brought into relationship. When you see somebody exercise forgiveness or mercy or grace, that's the renewal of all things. And it feels good. It feels like life in all its fullness. And notice this. It's when it benefits other people around you. When it's other people's joy that your joy bubbles up. Delight in the blessings of others is the most wonderful kind of joy. And when we find it and cultivate it, it grows exponentially. It's not about you. Those words, it's not about you, are the opening words of uh, Rick Warren's best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. Some of you will have read it. I'm about to reread it. I think it would be really good to reread and refresh myself. And he says self-help, self-actualization, self-expression, self-assertion, all these things which are on trend at the moment, these are not God's purposes for you. Health, wealth, and prosperity, these are not God's purposes for you. They might be side benefits, blessings, but they're not your fundamental purpose. Jesus says if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of me and my gospel, you'll find it. And that is the paradox of Christian life, that we have to keep on relearning week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. 27, 28 years I've been following Jesus and I'm still relearning it. Only when you're willing to die to yourself will you truly find life. You have a purpose. You're not an accident. You're not just a small cog in the economic machine. You're not supposed to bend the world uh, to your will so as to fulfill your every desire. Your purpose is to join in with God's extraordinary work of creation and recreation. How? By becoming more like Jesus. Not withholding from him any part of your life, but offering yourself to the transforming power of his spirit with wholehearted self-surrender. Believe me, I'm not claiming that I have got this figured out and answered or that I'm doing it perfectly. I am falteringly uh, but persistently staggering towards that end. I was wrestling with this question a few years ago about trying to express really succinctly what is my purpose as a Christian. And I came up with three things a few years ago, three purposes that I've tried to hold on to. Firstly, the, my first purpose is to reveal the ministry of reconciliation. Many of you know my favorite collect, my favorite set prayer in the calendar of uh, the Anglican Church is the collect for the second Sunday of Epiphany. And it says this, Almighty God, in Christ you make all things new. Transform the poverty of our nature by the riches of your grace so that in the renewal of our lives you might make known your heavenly glory. It's an amazing prayer. Transform the poverty of my nature by the riches of your grace and in the renewal, the transformation, the healing of my life, 
make known your heavenly glory. That's my first purpose as a Christian that I try to hold on to. My second purpose is to experience joy in God's presence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism teased out in the 17th century when Christians were trying to work out what is the fundamental purpose uh, of humanity, said the chief end of man and woman is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy God's presence. Worship. Glorify God. I went out for a walk yesterday. I put my headphones on and I listened to some worship music and I was just moved to tears walking around our streets, praying and worshiping God in my heart. And reminding myself of his delight and his joy in me and my delight and joy in him. So first purpose, to reveal the ministry of reconciliation. Second, experience joy in God's presence. Third, to experience fullness of life. Second century uh, bishop in France, Irenaeus, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. In other words, what's the most beautiful and wonderful thing that you can see about God? It's a human being fully alive. No death, no decay, no sin, no stain marring human life. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. That's our purpose. That's, our, that's God's purpose for us individually. So how then do we discover God's purpose for us collectively, a family of Christians united in this local church? Now, you may have many different purposes to belonging, for belonging to this church family. It could be an antidote to loneliness. Perhaps it's because you feel guilty about how many hours of each week you ignore God in daily life. Perhaps you feel overcome by despair, and a couple of hours on Sundays brings brief relief. Perhaps you're seeking to be a better version of yourself when you remember and when it's convenient. Perhaps you're seeking solidarity and companionship for this complex project that we call life in London. Perhaps you're hoping to raise your children in a way that might finally make your parents proud of you or you proud of yourself. There may be all number of different purposes that we seek this local church to fulfill for us. And believe me, I've probably expected the church to somehow fulfill all of these expectations or purposes that I just mentioned at one time or another. Pause and think for a moment about non-Christians who live in this neighborhood, maybe who live next door to you in your block of flats or across the road from you. What purpose might they expect this local church to fulfill? Perhaps they've never thought about it. Perhaps the church is just there. But perhaps if it was threatened with closure, they might be concerned or worried. In a former parish of mine, I suspect that the local churches wanted the church to be healthy and its gardens well kept, largely because it protected the value of their houses. It was a very wealthy neighborhood, and they didn't want their houses to suffer house price deflation because the church wasn't kept well. We will all have a variety of reasons for belonging to a church family, multiple purposes for the church to fulfill, some honorable and virtuous, and some not so much. But the more pressing question is, what is God's purpose for the local church, this local church? And I'm convinced that it's most helpfully explained in 2 Corinthians 5.19, which we have adopted as a purpose statement for our church. The verse says this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and that he has entrusted this ministry of reconciliation to us, to us, to you and me, to our church community, Christians gathered in this local church family, the ministry of reconciliation, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That ministry, that message is entrusted to us. I believe that we are ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is to say that we are here so that every man, woman, and child in Hoxton might come to know and experience what it means to be reconciled to God in Christ. And that reconciliation will involve experiencing the life and the hope of God's kingdom. And therefore, it will involve a more peaceable and a more just society emerging among us in which those who are typically marginalized or downtrodden will be brought in and lifted up. It should be good news for people. Of course, I hope and pray that people will also experience the fullness of that reconciliation by coming to a full realization and a verbal confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you believe in your hearts and you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, says the scriptures. That is what we work, hope, and pray for, for people, men, women, children in this neighborhood to believe and trust in Jesus and to do so explicitly, saying that they bear his name, that they put their trust in him. But the work of reconciliation is also broader than just the verbal confession. And even for those who deny the truth of Jesus, we can still help them experience the blessings of his presence through the church's loving service of its local neighborhood. That is our collective purpose, to seek the peace, the prosperity, the welfare, the flourishing of this neighborhood where God has placed us, and to pray to the Lord for it. In a season that is defined by anxiety, enmity, division, and fear. I'm reminded of what I think the Lord was communicating to us at the start of this year, that we should focus on three priorities. Rest, relate, renew. I've really enjoyed reading this volume of essays by Wendell Berry, and you'll hear me quoting him a lot because he's really moving me. I love these words of his in an essay in this volume. Slow down. Pay attention, do good work, love your neighbors, love your place, stay in your place, settle for less, enjoy it more. There is a restlessness that is born out of fear and in contrast, there is a rest that is born of God. And I truly long to find for myself the rest in God from which all love arises rest. We need to learn to relate to one another well, now more than ever. COVID has hidden us in our homes and kept us from one another. It has taken the enmity, the divisions, and the polarization of the Brexit debate, and it's intensified it so that our basic disposition towards one another is fear, judgment, distrust, and suspicion. And I'm not immune from that. We all have it when we point the finger at politicians or leaders or neighbors or friends. This is the devil's way. It's not the way of Jesus Christ. Wendell Berry again. He says about local communities, how can they know one another if they have forgotten or have never learned one another's stories? If they do not know one another's stories, how can they know whether or not to trust one another? People who do not trust one another do not help one another, and moreover, they fear one another. And this is our predicament now. Because of a general distrust and suspicion, we lose one another's help and companionship. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. This is not God's purpose for his church, his bride. 
Rather, his purpose is to express his kindness to us and through us. Ephesians 2 again, verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God's kindness is expressed to us in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection so that all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our perverse futility, greed, and pride might be crucified with him once and for all and that instead we might rise with him to live lives of justice, peace, hope, joy, and love. What does grace mean? What does grace stand for? Do you know the acrostic? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. It's God's grace that has saved us from what we were, what we are, and what we could be so that we can instead fulfill his purposes for us. His purposes for us individually, his purpose for us collectively. You didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this. It's not your right And you cannot manufacture this for yourself by self-help, self-expression, self-actualization. It is a gift of God. So my prayer for you today, my prayer for me today, my prayer for everybody watching at home today is that we would receive this gift again. Acknowledge the gift that has been given. Receive your vocation, your purpose. Receive the freedom and the love that your purpose brings. Would you stand with me so that we can pray? our attention drifts in and out during a sermon and there would have been distractions for people in the building or at home but if there's one thing that I want to pray that we would hear now it's that we are loved that we are made children of God that his purpose for us is to reflect his likeness to bear his image to represent Jesus in the world to do so with kindness mercy forgiveness joy and love So it's my prayer, Holy Spirit, that you would take every one of our lives and make them channels of peace, vessels of grace, conduits of your blessing. When the world around us, Lord Jesus, burdens us with messages about our purpose that are untrue, give us the courage and the strength to resist them. Speak your truth into our lives. When we are overcome with fear or enmity or hurt or pain, give us grace that we might be healed, that we might know ourselves to be raised up with you and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Lord, pour out your spirit on each one of us in this building, in every home, in every heart of every person listening and watching now. It 
it's by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is the gift of God to you. Receive it.